Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gauthier. Hey, welcome to The Flow Line, another episode by Justin Gauthier and my cohort, Matt Offenbacher. Thanks again for joining us today. And, uh, you know, for a lot of folks out there, I think this one's going to definitely pique some interest and and more so from a story standpoint. Uh, Matt and I were talking, you know, what ideas to uh, discuss today. And and one that we've bounced around but never really hit on was the offshore versus onshore. So, um, you know, before we get going, I really want to encourage the listeners to uh, leave a review. uh, Make sure you like it and share it. That's how we continue to grow. And again, we thank you for all the listenership, all the feedback. Um, and yeah, so again, let's kick this one off. Onshore versus onshore. Matt, why don't you go ahead and describe, even before we get to the mud standpoint, um, just the difference in rigs? Sure. I mean, you know, well, I think it, you start out, you think about land rigs, right? You've got your your doubles and your triples. And and we even know some of those rigs are are much better than others, just pumps, system pressure. So there, there's always distinctions, right? Um, and then on rigs, you know, it, it's typically is it how it's equipped and how deep you are and, and all that good stuff. Um, so really offshore, you could be in 10 feet of water, for example, and you'd be on an inland barge, which um, Justin, I know you've worked on, but I hear <laughs> yeah. everybody's got stories, but none of them are stories about enjoying the work they were doing or what a great time they had. It was more like, getting to know cockroach populations and, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, inland barge work is, is pretty interesting, actually. Uh, I worked on an inland barge for a little over a year, and and uh, I had worked on jackups before then, but uh, I always heard the term inland barge, and, and I thought it was pretty neat. You know, you're close enough to shore where if things hit the fan, you could, you know, potentially swim back to land. But, yeah, it was out in New Iberia um, in an area called Weeks Island, and, uh, it you know, you, you take this... <laughs> When you work on a bigger rig, you take a work boat, which is huge, but going on an inland barge, you take with just a little, a tiny tin boat, and they have these boat skippers that basically rip back and forth from the dock to the rig, which in my case, you know, depending on the well we were on, it was anywhere from a 10-minute little boat ride to, you know, a 15-minute boat ride. So it wasn't long, but yeah, uh, inland barges are, are interesting. To me, it reminded me of a, of a triple conventional rig just on a big pontoon and and from a mud engineer standpoint uh you know very similar um you know the volumes are a little bit bigger but uh it it, it, definitely some interesting folks that worked on on inland barges and they were most of the folks i worked with were all from mississippi and and they worked extremely hard but the one thing that fascinated me was just you know being that you were still on water um and it like for instance, they still used bumper blocks. So I remember one time I was in my middle little mud lab and it's right beside the catwalk and I'm sitting there, you know, doing paperwork and they're coming out sideways <clears throat> before they ran pipe. And all of a sudden I hear, what bam, and the whole trailer shakes and I'm in there like thinking that something had happened for sure. Like it was the loudest yeah. bang, the whole thing's shaking. I go outside and yeah, they had this, they rigged up a bumper block to come out sideways, which would be laying down singles. Um, but little things like that were were certainly interesting. But it's a very compact space. Um, 
you know, and, and again, just some very interesting folks. I don't know, Matt, have you had the glory of working on an inland barge before? No, I've just heard all the stories and been thankful that that never happened to me. Yeah, um, it's, it, yeah, it, well, <clears throat> again, every rig is different, but it's interesting from, from a money engineer standpoint, they have, you know, you've got the rig on these big pontoons, if you will, and then next to it, they have different barges that come, and that's how they transport things back and forth from the dock to the rig, is they're on these these pontoons or barges they call them and uh you know the mud comes out on a on a mud barge or a liquid mud barge they call it and then it's similar to you know offshore where you know they'll line up hoses and you've got uh you know basically people pumping from the barge onto the rig and back and forth and then uh all your pallet material is actually off to the side tied off onto a barge and they have a uh a lo- not a loader but a the forklift and the, from, you know, the operator I was working with and the mud company that, that we were allowed to hop on the forklift and uh, basically you would shift around all your stuff. So you really had to play Tetris because depending on the operations, depending on what products you needed, some, you know, if you're taking losses, you were, you were limited to this barge that had pallet material on there. So, you, so logistically, it was very important to plan your business. Um, and it was always a competition you know, on relief day and who could have the cleaner pallet barge. Uh, amongst you know me and my buddy and uh but but again definitely a different world and uh good experience you really had to plan your business and um but definitely not like offshore you're a little closer and it was one thing that was pretty neat is uh you know you would work you know same thing uh while on an inland barge you didn't have two 12-hour towers you know i was working as a single mud engineer but uh it's where I learned how to box, actually. Oh. Yeah, you know, just like any offshore experience, you know, there's a lot of downtime for the most part. But there was a boat skipper from, uh, you know, from New Orleans who was a who was a MMA and boxer. And so, yeah, I remember uh, cutting my teeth. He would bring out all his equipment, and we would stand on top of the galley in the middle of the night, and uh, we would like shadow box. <laughs> so it was it was a fun experience, and, yeah. and just you know, tough wells, and yeah, so it was good. I liked it. Yeah, well, I wanted to include inland barges because there's so many stories about them, and yeah, uh, you don't normally when you think offshore, you immediately go to things like jackups and semis, and uh, you know, uh, jackups usually work in up to about 400 feet of water, but at the very least, you're still on the you're, you're touching the sea floor, right? So you float this thing out, you you cantilever the legs, um, and you jack the basically the vessel up off the ocean floor. Um, and then it can actually, uh, the, the derrick can actually slide over a wellhead, um, or it, you know, depending on where you're drilling and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that as well, the, the blowout preventers and the stack is, is what we call dry tree, right? So it's, um, it's above water, which is a big deal for maintenance and lots of other things. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Semi-submersibles are probably when people think of offshore or deep water, they, they think of those uh, probably the most, which is the big, tall floating vessel where part of it is submerged, yeah. uh, hence the name. <laughs> um, and those can be anchored in place, uh, or um, now they do a lot of dynamic positioning, which is basically like satellites and thrusters to kind of keep uh, the rig over the wellhead. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I heard a story about dynamic positioning where um, even the the supply vessels will use it to stay near the vessel. Um, and apparently one thing they learned very quickly was the reflective tape on coveralls would actually screw up the system. Oh, really? Uh, and so uh, 
apparently a boat hit um hit the rig because it got thrown off by somebody's coveralls wow. who was climbing down um but then you get to you know from a semi-submersible you get to a drill ship and these things are massive and it's my my knowledge and granted i haven't worked on one but i've supported ops on one is sometimes they'll drill two or three wells before they even come back to shore um they just they'll go way way out um and they're designed to kind of have everything they need for for the long haul um and then in the midst of all that you could also just be on a a, a platform which uh a platform may have producing wells already uh and um you know one nice thing is even in you know a thousand feet of water a lot of times you can have a platform that is actually fixed to the ground so it doesn't rock mm. um for you seasick folks out there yeah um so there's this broad swath when you think offshore of of all these different places um, and kind of understanding that typically the more expensive ones, the drill ships and some of the newer semis um, tend to have the nicer equipment, the better food, the better accommodation. So when you start hearing somebody talk about a rig you, in the back of your, your mind, you're like, oh, that must have been a pretty nice <laughs> setup. Yeah, well, I, I've, and I haven't had the, the pleasure of working on you know, the only other offshore rig I've worked on was, was a jack up. And, you know, I, I feel like the closer to shore you get, the worse it is. And the further out you get, uh, the nicer it is. And I've heard some stories of folks, you know, even in our office, we've got a lot of guys that, and, you know, I think there's, shoot, probably the majority of our folks in here have worked offshore operations and sales, our, our guys here. Um, and, and so to, to hear them talk about it uh, is pretty fascinating. Just the living quarters, you know, a lot of them have gyms. And it's kind of, and you and I were talking about this, it's, to me, it's, it reminds me of a little bit of camp work and from like, uh, you know, field folks out there who work land. And, and I know a lot of them in Canada, myself included, when I worked with Precision, we'd be out in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, in the Rocky Mountains and it would be nothing but forest and we'd have these little man camps and there'd be a bunch of trailers buttoned up together. And so you'd have a, you know, a cook and, and you know, the crew that would help with the, you know, cooking and cleaning and just kind of taking care of that stuff. Um, it's similar to offshore and was working on a jackup, you know, you, you're basically out there to work and everything else is, is help is taken care of, you know, what, including your laundry, um, and, and cooking and, you know, they do cook some great food out there, you know, when you're out there. And so it's easy to, to gain a little weight and it's always fun, you know, certain days are fish days, other days are steak days, and it's always something to look forward to. Um, but Matt, you know, before we get onto the mud side, let's talk a little bit about how we actually get to these offshore rigs. Yeah, so I mean, you, you'd mentioned getting to a, a barge. You take the this little boat, but as you get further out, the, the boats get bigger. Yeah. Um. Uh. So you know. Um. And so a lot of it is I call it work boats. So you're taking out the equipment. Uh. The, the the vessel may be loaded with other things on the deck. Um. And you'll go inside the rig and ride out. And sometimes it you know it could be six eight hours. Yeah. Depending on seas, depending on some of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I feel like every boat ride I've had was at least eight hours and there was always nowhere good to sleep. Yeah. Um, oh, I, yeah. I, I was I was telling Justin earlier of a story when I was in Indonesia going to a rig and um, they had a it just the room you sat just had a big TV and really loud speakers. And they just had <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme movies on one VCD. <laughs> and so for eight hours, it was nothing but very loud Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, um, man. That, that, that's the last time I think I've seen one of his fine films. I'm sure. And it, it's like being brainwashed before you go out there. And yeah, w- the rigs that I was on, um, you, they were close enough to where it w- you, we could get out there with a workboat. And I think the furthest ride for me was about six and a half hours. 
And it's for people who, who've never done it, it's, it's a big tugboat, basically, is the way I would describe it, with a huge deck in the back. And then all this, like the sitting quarters and, you know, sleeping quarters <laughs> is, is, toward, is the front of the boat. And it's basically just like rows of seats that aren't comfortable. And then a couple tables to where you could sit, uh, like benches, and, you know, whether it's be food or have your laptop or something. And, uh, you know, again, no cell phone reception. So no one, you're not scrolling the gram for eight mm-hmm. hours. You're literally sitting there either talking or most folks just sleep. Like they just, you know, they try and get as much rest as they can. And, um, but yeah, I remember being, you know, coming back <clears throat> from work, I was, you know, going on my two weeks off and, uh, the, you know, you work in midnights and then the boat arrived early that morning and, um, it was raining and, and it was windy and miserable. And you're always praying that, the seas are calm enough to where the workboat is allowed to actually make it back to shore. Cause if the weather is not good enough, they may have you wait there for six hours or a day, sometimes even a week, depending on how the weather is. So you're really, there's no guarantee, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, and um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. The storms were, it was nuts. Like I said, and the workboat, um, you know, it, it arrives and it's, it's up and down and, I'm thinking, and that you know, people were like, "Oh, you you need to take uh, Dramamine," and I had never taken that. And for the you know, I have taken Gravol, which in Canada you, you used to take for motion sickness. But anyway, long story short, I'm, I hadn't gotten sick yet, and I was like, "No, you know, I'm good. I don't need that Dramamine. Like, I, I can man up if it's nasty." Well, <laughs> within like 20 minutes of making it back, the seas were so rough. I started getting so sick, and I was at the very front of the workboat, and I had my pillows with me, and I was trying to sleep. And it was just like up and down and up and down and it would go up and then all of a sudden it would catch a wave and then the boat would bam and drop down and everyone's kind of shaking around. And um, so anyway, I got sick and for about five and a half hours, I was like basically dry heaving because I had puke. And I remember being at the front and I was trying to hold it in. And in order for me to get to the bathroom, which was by the door before you get onto the deck, there was like probably 20 hands sleeping. So I didn't want to wake anybody up. I had my pillowcase, so I ended up puking in my pillowcase, and then it, I was like, what am I doing? And so it was just like such a mess, and I was dizzy and trying to walk over people, and it was just an absolute mess. And I literally, so when I got back to Port Fouchon, I got in my truck, and I had, I was so, like my equilibrium was so off from being seasick for like five and a half hours, I had to stop multiple times on the drive home because I felt like I was falling. Like, and and, and almost for like a week after that, I was out of sorts. Like my inner equilibrium was so thrown off. It was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. It's like the worst hangover times a thousand. Like it was, it was, it was crazy. I didn't, oh, it was terrible. So then every ride after that, regardless of how calm it was, I popped Dramamine and Mm -hmm. that saved my life big time. So So who wants to work offshore? (laughs) So Um, you want to work offshore and try that. Yeah. So, um. So one of the things about riding the boat is you get out to the rig and guess what? The rig may be a hundred feet off the water. Um, there's different ways of, of getting over. And, um, you know, probably when I, when I, when I was, I can't remember where I was, this is probably overseas as well. And, and I've heard people, I saw a video of somebody doing this where basically the boat backs up really close to the rig and you grab a rope and swing across. You're wearing a life vest and everything, but like, like the comments on this, when I saw it, people were like, I didn't think that was still legal. Like that's right. barbaric. Yeah. And I was like, well, I did it about 10 years ago, but, um, I was shocked you were allowed to do it then. Cause these were for, this was like a pretty major operator where you just wouldn't think, you know, if you slip, you're kind of between the boat and the rig. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, that's terrifying. And, and then there's another more common way, which would be um, to take a, a crew basket. And Justin, why don't you describe the adventure of, of riding the crew basket onto the deck? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So on a jackup or for any other rig out there, they have a crane. And so they, they basically deploy this basket that's maybe four and a half, five feet in diameter. And it's a big metal ring. And then it has, uh, it looks like a teepee. And then you throw your bags in the middle and there's a net so it doesn't fall out. Some are a little different, but for the most part, it's basically you stand on this ring, you hold onto the rope. So everyone's facing inward. And once everyone's on and, and grabbed on, all of a sudden the crane will slowly hoist you up. And next thing you know, you're 150, 200 feet above the water, hanging onto, hanging onto uh, just, a, just a rope. And then it'll swing you around in towards the rig and, and slowly, uh, slowly lower itself onto the rig and then everyone kind of jumps off but but again not knowing or or seeing it for the first time is kind of overwhelming because if you're afraid of heights and you panic and and somehow you you like lose whatever and you lose grip you're literally going to fall either 100 100 feet onto a deck or Mm -hmm. into the water and some people might think well that's crazy why don't you tie off but if you tie off that man basket weighs well over a few hundred pounds i'm pretty sure to where if you're tied off and that thing falls, everyone's sinking to the to the seafloor. So, but it's crazy because no one they don't really prep you for it. You just kind of see people jump on this thing and it holds I think like four or five people. Um, no one says like, "Hey, are you afraid of heights? Or do you have any issues with this?" Like you're literally just mm-hmm. expected to jump on this thing as if nothing. Like it's not a big deal. And so you kind of man up. And you know, for me, I was like, "Well, here we go." Like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be the laughing stock of the oil field. So I better hop on this this silly basket and get flung across the ocean. You know, and uh, so it's it's an interesting experience. It's one of those who anyone who's worked offshore has that experience, and it's kind of like your badge of honor. It's like, yes, I rode the man basket and I didn't die. <laughs> I mean, it is it is terrifying. Like, I am I am very scared of heights. Sure. Um, and so I just like look in and close my eyes and like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Um, <laughs> But you also kind of have to cushion yourself when you land, and it's it's one of those. Uh, the part I when I have opened my eyes is you know it's amazing on a like beautiful sunny day. Mm-hmm. You know you can see forty or fifty feet down underwater. You yeah. can see underneath the vessels. Um, you can also see all of the sharks <laughs> and other marine life that you know. Some of these rigs are kind of like reefs, you know. So uh, yeah. um, it a lot of thoughts go through your mind. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, the, so that's that's um, kind of why I like taking the helicopter. Um, <laughs> sometimes it seemed like you had to have special privileges to get to ride in the helicopter. And um, it, it was just one of those. And then the further out you got, it was sort of like the standard. Yeah. Um, but it'd be like, oh, boy, I get to go home on a helicopter today because it's like 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's a much shorter uh, ride. Um but you have to take some special training. They call it Hewitt or helicopter underwater egress training. A lot of us have, have done it. You, you know, you get dumped in a mock-up uh, helicopter tipped upside down and you got to swim out. And, um, but, uh, you know, riding a helicopter is as nice as it sounds from the perspective of you, you strap in, they, the pilot takes you over, um, you land. The only thing that's a little terrifying about that is that, well, you can get delayed because of fog and weather like any aircraft. And then um, you go to land, and, of course, when a helicopter is arriving on, on one of these installations, 
there's a bunch of guys in fire gear and water hoses and everything aimed at your helicopter while you're landing. And <laughs> okay, uh, so that. like every everybody's suited up, like just in case anything happens, like they can extinguish it quickly and no kidding. Um, so uh it, it's just you're landing at the rig kind of with this view of everybody like at the ready in <laughs> case some disaster strikes. Jeez. And then uh you know the the story I was told is is the HLO or the helicopter landing officer as they call them so the, well, the reason it's always the crane operator is because then they know the crane is down when the helicopter lands. And, you know, I've never heard an exact story, but people are like, well, one time it wasn't. And yeah. it's like, well, that's that's very reassuring. <laughs> um, so there's there's the the good and the bad of, of the helicopter, but it is much faster and, you know, pretty nice to get out to the rig. Yeah, um, I can imagine. I mean, to me, it'd be a little terrifying, too, at least on a boat, you know, you're you're on the water, but. Flying over water in a helicopter, I mean, everyone has horror stories that they've heard of. Um, but uh, yeah, like even I've heard of, uh, and again, for anyone out there, this may be like the odds of this happening are very mm-hmm. rare, but like being on a helipad and about to take off and it literally just, the, the helicopter would literally just go up and then flip over oh, the helipad. Gosh. And like, I think maybe that's happened one time in the last hundred years. It only years. takes one, Justin. <laughs> True <laughs> that. Um, but anyway, there's risk involved. And so, you know, anytime you're going to the rig and even driving, I think we, we assume the risk, even if we're going to a land rig in the Eagleford from here, yeah. especially driving in Houston, there's always risk involved logistically. But but the difference is it's it's pretty drastic. And so, uh, you know, we just thought it'd be interesting to mention. But, uh, you know, and again, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, on, when you're, okay, so you, we get to the rig, we've established that we've yeah. made, had the adventure of getting there. What's it like being on the rig? I think it's like you were saying, you know, it's like everything's sort of taken care of. But, uh, you know, on a lot of rigs, um, you know, there's a night guy for everything, right? There's day crew, night crew. So you may not um, have uh, it. it, You may only you you may only be working 12 hours, but they're serving four meals a day because there's a meal in the middle of the night as well. Um, And so you're doing a handover every day. But then you've got you work 12 hours and I sleep a lot when I'm out there. Yeah. Um, but I know people who are like read books, go to the, you know, there's usually a gym in some of the, the bigger rigs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of these other, other kind of activities for when you're not working. Yeah. Um, and there's not much to do outside of that. A lot so. of, a lot of room for self, uh, self help. <laughs> That's where I read. So I'm thinking of that, uh, wasn't on an, on an offshore rig, but when I was on land working in man camps, same thing, you're isolated, no cell phone reception. You're in your, either in your room or in the kitchen or the TV room. But, um, I read like when I was 18, 19 years old, that's when I got a, was like, well, I can't get on my phone. I can't do anything. I might as well read books. And that's actually how I started reading books. I think the very first book I ever read was definitely not in, in school. It was out in camp, uh, working rigs. And, um, but yeah, you're right. Like, it's just, you're, you're either sleeping, working, eating or reading. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. When I, the first time I went offshore, I didn't know how long I was going to be out there. And, uh, so, and I was overseas. So one of the only English language books I could get, like the biggest English language book I could, you could get was the brothers Karamazov by <laughs> Fyodor Dostoevsky. And it was supposed to be this classic <laughs> okay. and everything, but it was like, well, hopefully I don't read all this before I get sent back. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah, so, but let's talk a little bit about the the galley and the food. That's kind of where everyone congregates. And, and, you know, for the folks out there who've worked it, you you know, there's, you you could literally go in there at any time of day and there's food either being cooked, cooked or leftovers or pies, Mm -hmm. cookies, 
treats, pralines, anything you could think of. And so it's very easy to, to, you know, gain the fluff when you're offshore and the, and the cooking is good. Like I know offshore Gulf of Mexico, um, a lot of the cooks are from South Louisiana, Mississippi, where they make some real good food. Yeah. And they show it off. And I'd say the other interest like Gulf of Mexico, one thing I loved is everyone would bring a different hot sauce. <laughs> yeah. And so like, there were always all these extra seasonings and all of these things you'd never heard of. But even in like the smallest rig, there would be like a shelf on the wall with 40 or 50 hot sauces you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> and so, but, but yeah, you tend to eat pretty well. And I would always get kind of depressed partway through my hitch and there was ice cream in the galley and go eat like a ice cream Snickers bar every night. Oh. It was just, it, it was not, not a great opportunity to eat healthy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and one, actually uh, something that I was introduced to offshore and, and to this day is probably my most favorite sauce on the face of the earth is tiger sauce. Have mm. you ever had tiger yeah. sauce? Oh, it's so good. It's like a sweet and sour chili sauce, um, kind of with a Cajun flair to it. And I'm a health nut. So of course I read the ingredients, all that stuff. And believe it or not, it's actually not too bad. It's, there's not a lot of junk in there. So whoever mm. made tiger sauce at like hit it on the nose, every table in the galley had tiger sauce and they had cases of it in the back. And then they had this other stuff that I never really could get into, but it was like this like liquid butter in this like squeezable tub. And, and most folks would just like slather stuff, you know, all this liquid butter on there. And I started looking at the ingredients, of course, me being me. And I recognized some of the ingredients were actually in plastic. So oh, yeah. um, if it's a toss up <laughs> between the liquid butter and the tiger sauce, I always go with the tiger sauce. <laughs> it's a good, a good health tip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing, of course, is I mentioned that I like to sleep a lot. Um, and you know, a lot, some of them would have, so some of the, the rigs you'd have like a, a common bathroom. So the quarters would just be like two sets of bunks and maybe, you know, some lockers, uh, you might have a sink in there, maybe a TV, but usually there was at least a couple of people sleeping. So you never have that on. Um, and then I've heard of just like two beds in one, where like day guy night guy and it's like you have the room to yourself when you're off mm-hmm. but like what what was it like on the on the inland barge oh, terrible so again it was so it was basically a room and and i'm trying to remember so you'd walk in and there was one bathroom and then there was one two three four sets of bunk beds so at one time there was at least two or three people sleeping at one time but then they would have there would always be a couple empty beds for service hands to come in so there was never, like, when I was on a jack-up, when I was off for my 12 hours, I shared the bedroom with my relief. So on 12 hours, it was just me, myself, and then the bathroom, who I shared with, which is funny. I give a story about this. Shared it with a, with the coming man. But anyway, uh, so on an inland barge, is basically a, a, a ton of bunk beds slammed in this one room with one bathroom. And some people like it cold. Some people like it warm. People are in and out of there. So that's when I actually started sleeping with earplugs. I'd never done it before. Um, but yeah, it was, it was miserable. Like, I think I even ended up like in the, in the mud lab, uh, it was a decent sized mud lab and and most mud labs have a bench or the ones that I worked on had benches. I usually sometimes would just sleep on the bench. Cause I knew there like the, if we were cementing yeah. or if there was, a, and like even the coming man would be like, Hey, you know, I need your bed for the next couple of days. I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, it looks like I'm sleeping in the mud lab for the next couple of days. And so, yeah, the, the quarters on an inland barge are, are not great, but I mean, everyone tries to respect each other. If, if, if you know, you, you peek the door open and the light's off and you notice someone in the bunk bed, you try and tiptoe and, 
But I mean, you know, on an inland barge, you still have cell phone reception, or at least I did. So like, I remember folks be like watching movies and like talking with their wives and I'm trying to sleep and it, it's just, it, it just was not great. But I mean, you work through it, you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember, I, I mean, I usually had it pretty good, but I was on, I was on a, uh, a platform that was, that was fairly shallow water and they, they, they were, we were, uh, sidetracking a well. So they, it was a, they, they call them sundowner rigs, but they're very compact footprint. And then they just had what they call elder buildings, which is basically a stack of containers for quarters and galley and all that. Mm-hmm. And so we had, it was basically like a container and you had six bunks, like three on each side. Um, and then like a middle one that had a bathroom and a shower and then another set. But my set was closest to the rig, which was very close. I mean, if they would have dropped a stand, it would have fallen on us. <laughs> so, and we were right. And for whatever reason, they put the generator stack right next to us too. So like every time the door would open in the middle of the night, it'd be, and all the lights from the rig, just like, blasting in and uh you know it it was just it was a little different so i think you know when you have a a nice little bunk bed or the door you can close and all that it's yeah um you appreciate it more after going through stuff like that yeah most definitely and and one thing and we'll we'll get to mud we promise Mm -hmm. but one thing is something that i always i always laugh about is working on a jack up you know, I shared a room with a, with a mud engineer. So on, you know, when I was off, it was just me sleeping in there. Totally fine. Well, the bathroom, it's, it's like a, I don't know, Jack and Jill maybe, but like, anyway, my door goes in the bathroom and then offside that was the, uh, the coming man who was working the same tower as me, the night coming man. Well, one time, you know, you shower up, whatever you lock both sides. Well, I had forgot to unlock his side. So he couldn't get into the bathroom. Well, he comes banging on my door and Hey, Mud engineer, open up the door. Oh, sorry, sorry. So I go in there, unlock it, whatever, and then he goes around and gets in his thing. Well, anyway, he, he just he was a very odd character, and he's like, "Next time you do that, I'm running you off." And I was like, "Dude, that's a little extreme, but okay. Like, I'll yeah. make sure to keep the door unlocked." Like, <clears throat> and he was again, he he threatened everyone for some silly stuff, but um, yeah, I was when I was in the galley eating, and uh, he comes down and he just chews me up and down about how, and this was a couple of days later about how I locked the door. He's like, you know, I've had enough of you. And he's like, I don't know if it's a joke or what you're trying to do and this and that. And I, and I was just like, Mr. So-and-so I'm like, look, I did not like, I haven't used a bathroom for like six hours. Like I literally, like I knew in my mind, like I had not locked mm-hmm. him out. Well, come to find out. And like, I guess someone had, went and worked with the, the lock or something because it was having issues. Well, it's come to find out, and I forget how it happened, but they found out that he actually locked himself out. <laughs> oh, and gosh. so, yeah, but, and it wasn't long after that that he was causing a bunch of grief. Well, he didn't last too long on that rig, but he, yeah, he, it was, it was kind of, it was pretty comical. He thought I'd try to lock him out, but come to find out, you know, he, he dug his own hole. So it's like, come on, you know? I thought he would have shown up with his, you know, hat in his hand and, and apologized. Oh, no, he wouldn't admit that. That, that but doesn't I, seem to happen very often. No, no. But, I, yeah, I got the last laugh because I, I didn't get run off. He did. So. <laughs> well, uh, so there's a few other rooms in the rig um, that are sort of famous, infamous. You know, one being the gym we've mentioned. Um, the other two I, I always like to talk about is, like, the smoking shack, where if you can't find somebody, you're looking around, you're looking around. There's there's one room where everybody's allowed to smoke. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's usually like a container box, not attached to anything or whatever. Um, where is it? And it's all these dudes crammed in. <laughs> it's like a sauna, but for smoking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was always an interesting one. And then like, 
the TV room, I don't know about on the rigs you were at. We normally had our safety meeting. So before crew change, yeah. we, we'd have the safety meeting. And, and there would always be, I usually worked nights. And so, like, we'd be all be watching, like, Robot Chicken together, some comedy, <laughs> set, like, really weird. Yeah. We'd have to turn it off, and we'd all talk about, you know, what we were going to be doing for the next 12 hours. Yeah. Um, but the TV room was sort of a gathering place. Um, what were your experiences with? Yeah, it was it was mainly service hands that you wondered why they were there watching silly <laughs> things. And But one of the neatest experiences I had, um, I think... It was on the inland barge. We had a pretty decent sized TV room, and it was when I think L- it was when LSU played Alabama, and I don't remember mm. which year it was, or like what if it was a bowl. I don't know. It was just some game that, like, for weeks, people were talking crap to each other on the rig, and this thing was slam packed, and it was just such a neat experience because you had people from Mississippi, Alabama, and then you had your people from you know Texas and Louisiana, and. And, um, but yeah, for the most part, it's, you know, whether it's sports or like, you know, I remember Jerry Springer being on or just like junk TV and it's, it wasn't special, but one of the neatest experience again, was just a good rivalry football game. Everyone liked each other, but for that day it was just, you know, blood, sweat and tears, uh, you know, just with regards to all the stuff, you know, talking back and forth and, um, it ended up being a good game. I don't remember who won, but you know, they they had whoever's team won. They had bragging rights for weeks. It was like you never heard the end of it, but it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe we ought to dig into to some of the the operational side of things, right? Um, just by way of I, I don't know, like uh, some of it, you know, mud's mud, sure. but there are are some pretty distinct differences. Um, Justin, why don't you start diving into some of that? Yeah. So, uh, anyone who's worked on land, you know, it, a lot of times it's a struggle to get things done. Um, rig hands are busy. You've got a lot of guys doing a lot of different things and, uh, it's, it's <clears throat> offshore from my experience, it's you're, you're spoiled in a sense. You'd have, there's a lot of extra hands to help. Uh, and so one thing I was, you know, blown away by is I had a, a pit hand and then that was like solely dedicated to helping me. And, you know, obviously he worked for the driller and the tool pusher, but, you know, if I needed, you know, anything mixed or, you know, fluid transfers, uh, he was kind of my right hand man. And normally from my experience on land, it was a Derek hand. And I know nowadays I, I keep hearing shaker hand. I don't know if that's a land thing that's been developed, but it wasn't when I was working rigs. Mm. So, um, but anyway, yeah, you'd have a lot of extra help, which was extremely helpful. Um, and especially with mud and, offshore it's you know and we talked a little bit about this but there obviously cost is a concern for everybody but with the amount of you know just the whole complexity of the project they expect cadillac and so if you're not getting help mixing something on the minute every minute on the hour every hour whatever it is uh you know there's there's seriously some you know there's implications and and you know tool pushers and uh and um you know, the coming man on the rig certainly give you the re- resources to, to run your mud properly. So, uh, that part of it, you know, just the hands and, that are willing to help is, is certainly important. Um, you know, do, do you have any experience from, with that side of things? I mean, an experienced hands at that, you know, right. Um, yeah. It's amazing. Like, uh, you know, yeah. I, I mean, when I worked deep water, you had a pit hand, you had a shaker hand. We also had what was called a pontoon hand. Okay. Um, and so that was on a semi-submersible down in the pontoons. You'd have these big storage tanks. And so you could transfer mud up and down and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so he would, it was really creepy to go down to the pontoons. It was like, think about putting yourself in like a phone booth, but you can't see out. 
and just this really, really long ride. You know you're going below the waterline, super slow, and you have to tell the the radio operator, uh, you know, hey, I'm going down. Uh, you know, I'm going to go down, and like then at the bottom, you report like you made it safely, right? <laughs> and uh, hopefully they know to go looking for you. Um, so it's like super creepy, but, uh, you had these guys and not only that, but a lot of them had been at it for a while. So yep. you, you didn't have to babysit anything. Um, you know, I think on land, there's just a lot of, a lot more inexperience. Uh, obviously like they don't have to pay as much and it's just, it's different when you're offshore, like, you know, checking shaker screens or whatever that like you'd go kind of, Hey, I'm going to start checking. They're like, uh, you know, the shaker hands, like I already got them all. Yeah, you know, and you're you're just like, oh, okay, um, yeah. So you're standing out by the pits, but there's like three other guys who, you know, probably could do it without you, uh, to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that kind of ties into running mud is is fairly, in my opinion, easy offshore just because you have all these resources. But the big challenge is staying on top of everything. Um, you know, the logistics. Yeah. Um, you you'd mentioned even just trying to keep everything organized on the barge, but whatever's out there is, is out there and nobody wants to wait on you yeah. if you're missing something. Oh, and that's for, for me, you know, m- again, mud's mud and, and offshore you're dealing with a little bit more temperature, pressure, a lot of casing strings. So potentially a lot of different density fluids. Um, but it, you know, you're dealing with when I was there, it was like a lime mud, a dispersed ligno mud or synthetic. And, and so you, you get pretty good at running that. And, and of course you've got, you know, several you know, hundred or even thousand feet worth of gumbo that you have to drill. So you get really good at drilling clays with water-based mud. <clears throat> but, um, you know, aside from that logistics, I think is where, uh, you know, what separates the good from the best and especially, and, and just controlling that. And, and because a lot of times like the coming man would ask me, he said, Hey, I'm not having, I don't have a workbook coming for three or four days. Like, what do you need? Because the next one's coming today or whatever. Just just like, hey, whatever you need, forecast it for the next even week. Uh, so it was very interesting. to You really had to plan ahead and then ahead some more. And so, yeah, that was, and especially with regards to Barrett. Um, mm-hmm. That was, a, that was again, for, it was a challenge for me. And, and I got more comfortable as time went on. But, but really uh, if efficiently utilizing the chemicals that you had and being able to understand your burn rate daily, you know, and you got to account for dilution and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, again, logistics was, was probably the biggest separator for me working offshore versus land. I, I agree completely. And it was, you know, for us, sometimes we'd be displacing to a different mud. And so it would be like, okay, let's offload this onto this boat. And then they're like, well, we need to, we're going to send it back to town. It's like, you can't leave yet. I need to finish offloading. Or, right. you know, you're trying to tie in... <laughs> When is the casing coming? I know if it's on that load, we'll be at, you know, near TD. And um, then also just even the, you know, trying to explain to the customer when there's buybacks and rental stuff and all that, like, look, this is heavier mud. Let's keep it all together. Yeah. Um, Keep it in this tank. But that tank only holds 500 barrels. There's dead volumes in the boats. Um, It's it's a challenge uh, for sure is just making sure you have everything, but then you can't hoard it because there's not enough space to keep it. Right. Uh, Like the sack room was sacred space and it was so frustrating because nobody ever wanted to send anything back that they thought they might could use, you Mm. know? But at the same time, it was like, look, I got to plan for the next interval. Like I got to get all this chemical out of here. Right. Um, So that was always kind of, kind of tricky. 
Um, but it all ties into, um, you know, most of the stuff on the mud side of things, you get to run some nice systems and, you know, synthetics pretty, pretty easy and forgiving. So a lot of it's fluid movements for cement jobs and stuff like that. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, they're trying to save time. Um, the, the cost of the mud is a very small part of the overall budget for a hundred million dollar well, you know? Of course. Yeah. And that's, you know, going back with, with logistics too, it's, you know, it's cause you're having you have different fluids coming and going and uh a lot of it what i learned uh offshore which was pretty valuable and we don't do it too much on land is these big open hole displacements um and, and writing displacement procedures on land it's kind of like oh you know you bump the plug you displace like it's just it's very very cookie cutter to me yeah um but offshore it was there was some huge open hole displacements when you're talking two three four thousand barrels of mud probably a lot more the deeper you get um or the bigger rigs you get but um yeah doing those types of things i really got good at you know whether it's like calculating different you know strokes spotting this you know plugging that or uh you know we we spotted it was very odd like spotting barite pill like spotting like basically a, a slug of barite in different intervals for different things and you're just kind of exposed to a lot of different downhole things that you wouldn't normally see on land um and then other things too is is it, the ability to not when you're on oil base or synthetic, but being able to dump fluid off sh- off into the water. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of compliance things that you have to be organizing. Um, you have to do manifests, you know, so whenever you're taking orders, you have to have a load with the, the right amount of weight that you have to give to, um, I forget who probably the coming man it was, but, but yeah, so there's a lot of those things happening as well. Sure. And I, I mean, you know, on the compliance side of things, I know, you know, we interviewed James a while ago and, and he started out as a compliance hand. Like it was a good way to kind of find your way in, but that stuff's taken very seriously where, um, you know, I think, a, a lot of us had the experience where the coast guard bar, the coast guard, you know, boards the rig and they want to see your paperwork. Yeah. Um, and they will shut you down. It's, it's one of those, um, you know, and, and organizationally, that's another interesting thing. I think I'll add just, uh, you know, so you have, you have all the typical rig crew people and, and more. Um, and then you have what's called the OIM or the offshore installation no, manager. No. Um, and they kind of have the final say on everything. Um, and they are ultimately responsible, but they, they aren't necessarily a, a drilling ops person right. um, per se. They obviously have the knowledge and the experience, but like they've got to deal with all this stuff up front. And basically anything they see from you that involves a headache um, it could create a lot of trouble for your future career. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you, you really have to have your, everything, your T's, your T's crossed and your eyes dotted. And, and then on top of that, you're doing sheen tests and you're sending samples back to shore. And, uh, so there's just a lot of little interesting things. But one of the re- things I really appreciated offshore was, was the sense of urgency to have good solids control. And as mm-hmm. a mud, mud guy for me was like, you know, on land, it's, hit and miss and right. it's just because it's, just, it's so busy there's so much things going on but but offshore uh it, it just i found that you had pretty solid hands and the equipment was usually running properly and you know they used the desander and desilter which on land is like a dinosaur fossil you know what i mean right. um but but just the emphasis on on making sure solids control was running you know if i if i had a you know something i had to bring up to the company man like, hey solids control down it was like whoa like we need to get this, you know, fixed again. And, uh, so that part of it, I, I certainly could appreciate. 
Yeah, I think, and, and it was also kind of interesting, like, Solid's control, um, the economics of that, and then you, you break it down to, like, some of these bigger rigs. I mean, I, I remember having, a, I think, a, a 6,000 barrel circulating volume once, um, and, and the riser is almost all of that, right? So mm. you're in deep water, the, the, um, it's a, the BOP stacks on the seafloor, um, and then you, ha- you have this huge volume of, of just from, from there up to uh, the flow line. And, um, so it's kind of weird. Cause like you weren't like treating out contamination or right? you, you would always had like a premix that you were, you were transferring over and you were diluting as needed. Cause they did want really tight properties. Yeah. But, um, it, things didn't happen very quickly as far as like a real mud problem. Um, other than maybe sag or something, something like that, that, uh, um, so it's just a, a little different. I remember my first my first job offshore for deep water, I was like, man, I'm, I'm the big time. Like, yeah, this is all serious. And it felt like we drilled so fast and it was all synthetic based mud. By the time I got out there that it was like, all we did was run casing. Um, and <laughs> yeah. so m- main, almost everything was just pit management for the cement job. Right. Um, and that's, that's about all I remember <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. was, you know, so, but the equipment is really nice. The, um, uh, typically you have some pretty experienced people. Um, I, it, it does irritate me a little, or I get a little antsy just because I know I can't leave. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I get a little claustrophobic or confined. Yeah, of course. Um, but, uh, it is also just incredible to, you know, be going out there and like, wow, there's enough oil down there where somebody thinks it's worth enough to build this giant vessel and drill for this and right. then go do it again. Right. Um, what would you say? And off the top of your head, I mean, initial production on land, it could be anywhere from two to 4,000, maybe more barrels per day. What are some of the numbers you've come across in your career with, with offshore? I mean, it's astronomical. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, and, and a lot of our land wells do 500 barrels a day and that's considered a really good well, right? Sure. Um, I mean, you're, you know, the 4,000 is a really good well. And then, the, and that's definitely happening in, in some of these plays. But, uh, um, I know like a lot of the deep water stuff, we would, we would look at about 15,000. Um, I think the, the most, uh, and this is when I was doing production st- reservoir drilling fluids. So we, we, and we get that information, which wasn't very often, but, um, some of the wells I, I worked in Azerbaijan were, were 25, 27,000 barrels a day. Sure, um, crazy you do the simple math on that that's that's why they can spend you know however many millions yeah trying to drill these wells uh the payback is is quick even at at that expense you know and and gas wells uh you know some of the stuff in israel was 230 million cubic feet a day which um you know i think i think some of the stuff in azerbaijan was about 250 um just massively prolific wells yeah um which once again is why you go all the way over there and install all this infrastructure is it's obviously worth it. Yeah. Matt, what are your thoughts just, you know, with regards to offshore? I know a lot of the mud engineers that we work with were offshore hands that now went to land just because of the whole, you know, shale revolution. Do you ever see offshore coming back anytime soon? I think so. I, th- I think to a degree it is, you know, it's not going to be what it was. Um, but you know, decline rates in shale wells are, are big. Um, and so you've got these prolific, reservoirs that you don't necessarily you kind of have an idea where they are um the you know and and let's say you install a billion dollar platform for production 
Well, most operators, it's not that that's all their wells. They lease out space on that. And so if you can do subsea tiebacks, mm. tieback, you know, one operator goes with another one and, and does some of these, these tieback operations, it actually works out um, fairly economic. Um, so I think it's just, you know, about managing costs and some projects are going to get sanctioned and others won't. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I think, I think it, it has, and it, it'll come back, but it'll, it just won't be like it was. Gotcha. But I think it's like what we saw on land where there were some pretty nasty rigs out there for a while that I'm glad went to the scrapyard. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you're seeing that where there were some, some pretty horrible rigs that people were using, especially in the jackup market that, um, needed to go to scrap and thank goodness they, they found their way there. Sure thing. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, that's all the, the fun stories I have for offshore. Matt, you got any closing last words, buddy? No, I mean, I hope we hear some, some war stories from some other folks. Uh, yeah, we hope you have fun hearing this, whether you've worked offshore or not. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit different, but I, I think, you know, to the credit of, of land versus offshore, you know, when we bring on these offshore hands, it's, it's like, Hey, you know, you don't have a bunch of people doing this stuff for you. And, and a lot of them have worked land before and they, they get it, but, yeah. um, it's an adjustment. And I think vice versa, you know, on land, you're worrying about completely different things and offshore you're, you're worried about completely different things. Yeah. Um, but there's plenty of overlap, obviously. Of course. Well, with that, everyone out there, we appreciate it. If you have any questions or feedback, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com or hit us up on LinkedIn and we'd be happy to chat. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.